Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we are on road trip number 57. So Aaron, where do you think we should head today? First of all, I'm just amazed at these numbers, 57. Well, you know what, Tony, we, you, you seem to really like the uh, West Coast, especially California, so I think we should go there a couple of times. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea, and in fact, we're tying into a story that we did last week. We've been doing that uh, lately, and you know what else we were just mentioning before the trip here is that we're going chronological today. That almost never happens. Yeah, I know. That's, it's fantastic. Yeah, usually and, we're hopping around. Well, we are, and we're going to go to uh, my, well, not my birthplace, but my, where my ancestors come from, uh, Ireland, Dublin, so that'd be fun. Yeah, that'll be fantastic. So let's hit the road and we'll be right back. So we're going to start today's road trip on the West Coast and we're in Los Angeles. We've been here quite a bit lately, but this is tying in nicely with last week's episode when we talked about uh, Brian Wilson and his dad and the problems they were having. And uh, this is a pretty interesting coincidence going on here, isn't it? It is indeed. And just a point of fact, Tony, I'm glad we got the Nexus card because we're going to L.A. so often. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah, so this is uh, Wilson Phillips. (laughs) Wilson Phillips going to number one on the U.S. charts with Hold On. But that's, you know, that's great in and of itself, but... 25 years earlier to the day to the day yeah yep uh brian wilson had been at number one with a tune that we were talking about uh, last week and the tune that caused the dust up between him and his father it helped me Rhonda. so 25 years to the day after help me Rhonda went to number one wilson phillips went to number one with hold on the other the other thing that's interesting is they were both signed to capitol records just as just kind of one of those other weird things and unlike the Help Me Rhonda sessions, there's no reported stories of Brian Wilson coming into the studio drunk, yelling at his uh, daughters. So that's good news. Oh, well, that's exactly. And you were mentioning, I remember on uh, the last road trip, that Brian actually kind of was mo- much more hands off and just let uh, let them do their own thing. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. The only time he really got heavily involved with his daughters was in 97. And they kind of dragged him into the studio. It wasn't it wasn't like he was trying to manage their career or take over, but they wanted to record with their dad. And in 1997, so many years, seven years after their initial success, he did record with them on a song called Monday Without You. After they left Wilson Phillips and just became the Wilsons, he did record with them, but you're right. Like he he was very, I'm sure he gave them some advice, and I'm sure he helped out where he could. But I think he was smart enough to kind of let them do their own thing. I have to ask you, Tony, what did you think of Wilson Phillips when they first came out? I thought it was a fresh sound. To be honest, I liked it. What about you? I thought it was a a fresh sound, but but a sound that borrowed heavily from the '60s California sound. I mean, the other member. Of course, is um, China, China Phillips, the daughter of John and Michelle Phillips, of the Mamas and the Papas. So, you're going to have that, in my opinion, West Coast '60s 
California sound. When you like, don't you hear? Do you hear that in there too? Or is I totally me? hear that in there. I mean, they grew up around that sound constantly, and and you can really tell. Now, before we move much further, I I just have to say something about hold on. I think I messaged you. Hold this on, morning. Tony. Hold on. Hold on. Before you say no, just kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think there needs to be a rule, like a hard and fast rule. Movie makers and TV show producers, if you're listening. There needs to be a rule that you're no longer allowed to use the song Hold On in romantic comedies or teenaged drama television series. What do you think? Yeah, I, I have to say there needs to be a moratorium put on that. Um, sometimes it's used effectively, and there's been a couple that have been very funny. But you know what? It's it's over. It's like um, the one from Titanic. You know, it, oh. it got... <laughs> Sorry, I just my, choked on my own vomit my, a little bit there. Yeah. But... <laughs> If I was in the same studio, I'd pound you on the back for it. First of all, I like the song. When Hold On first came out, I thought it was a a lovely song. It it is a good song. But are you not sick of it now? Seriously. Yeah, I mean, I was joking about the movie thing, but I am really sick of it. And it it is frightening how often it comes up in uh, movies and television. Yeah. It's it's almost like... um, this is going to sound really hypercritical. I don't mean it to, but it's almost like a very lazy, you know, thing for producers to kind of fall back on. We need a song here. Oh, let's just hold on. Yeah. As opposed to trying to find newer songs or different songs or things of that nature, right? So, well, especially you know, you you can just see it, right? The one character is struggling, and what comes out? Uh, hold on, hold on for one more day, because things will so. go your way. <laughs> A bit of a chintzy rhyme there, but okay, we'll give it to you. <laughs> but that their first album was was a monster. They had a lot of hits and it sold millions and millions of copies. Um, their second album called Shadows and Light, not so. It was okay. It was bigger. It was big, not as big as their first album, and it was a much more serious album if you listen to it. Hmm. But you know, I I did like them when I first heard them, and then of course. Uh, I didn't realize at first, I heard, oh, this group's called Wilson Phillips. And then, you know, then you hear, oh, it's Brian Wilson is related to them. And it's like, wow, that is very cool. Well, the first time you see the name, before you hear the music, you see Wilson Phillips. You assume it's like, you know, Wilson Pickett, like some guy. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, the first, you know, in print, the first time I saw it, I thought, so who's this guy? It's Wilson Phillips. Um, but, you know, I, I we talked about this before, and it's worth repeating. I think it's really hard to be the children of or, or child of of um, someone as famous as a Beach Boy or Elvis or the Beatles or Pete Townsend or oh for sure I, Mick Jagger whoever t- take your pick and and I just saw on the weekend uh, Priscilla Presley had a her seventy fifth birthday party which oh my blew goodness me away. yeah and and you think to yourself she hasn't had a, an easy go of it either right no she's seventy five so, wow yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I just think that the Wilson, Wilson Phillips were smart because they didn't play up the Brian Wilson connection. Because you just said, you said, you know, when you first heard them, you didn't even connect the dots. And they didn't really play up on that, in my opinion, at least from what I remember. Later on, of course, they talked about it. But uh, it's like the Wallflowers. You know, how many people knew that Jacob Dylan was Bob's son? Yeah, you know, that, that's a good example, actually. Yeah, for sure. Right. He carved out his own sound, his own name. 
And then it's kind of like, oh, yeah, my dad's Bob Dylan. You're like, oh. <laughs> Just a sidebar. <laughs> oh, how are you? <laughs> did, I, did I tell you that my, uh, Linda was at a pub, not a pub, but a bar in New York City. She was talking to some guy. And after the conversation, he she found out that it, it was Bob Dylan's grandson. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I said, why didn't you marry him on the spot? Like, oh, come on, that's right. Bob, Bob could have come to your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. What's your grandpa doing? Can he sing? You know? <laughs> Yeah, you might. Be, can I have? Can I be at his table? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you just put it as the uh, Zimmerman table. Don't even tell people. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you know the Zimmermans. I do personally. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Uh, let's. Uh, what, what did you pick for charts here? So I went with the top five American albums, Billboard. Um, for that week. And, and it's interesting because we talked about rom-coms. There's a very, very famous rom-com soundtrack in the top five. Number five is Belle, Biv, DeVoe, and Poison. Number four, you, you, you must have seen Pretty Woman. Oh, who hasn't? Yeah. Right. Yeah. What did you, did you like that movie? I did not. Just, just saying. Didn't do it for okay. me, but. <laughs> okay. We're on the same page, but the soundtrack was good. The soundtrack was very good and it features a song you might get the bell ready. Features a song on there, co-written by Mr. John Lennon. Uh, a song called Fame by David Bowie, which oh. was remixed for Pretty Woman. And that song was written with John Lennon, co-written by John Lennon. You know what? You that go. is, that's bellworthy. So let's ring it right now. <laughs> um, also in the top five was number three, Heart and their album Brigade. Number two, interesting, and I didn't do this on purpose, I swear. Uh, number two is Sinead O'Connor, I Do Not Want What I Don't Got. And we're going to be talking about, or I guess I do not want what I don't have. Number one is MC Hammer, Hammer Please Don't Hurt Him. But we're going to be talking about Sinead next segment, right? We are. Uh, we're going to, going to go to uh, June 10th, 1993. In fact, you know what, why don't we do that now? Let's head to Dublin, and we'll be right back. Sinead O'Connor uh, is a really good example of someone who was massive with her single, um, you know, the one that Prince wrote, and the song just went right out of my oh, head. Oh, nothing compares to you. Nothing compares to you. I mean, this is a woman that had literally the world at her feet. and oh, yeah. But she kind of torpedoed her career by one single TV appearance. Now, in 2022, I cannot imagine a single TV appearance having this impact on a career. But... She basically, at least in North America, destroyed her career. But she was huge, right? Oh, and, um, she was. And it was a big deal that she was on Saturday Night Live. I, I remember that. Did, did you? I, I, I actually remember staying up late to watch it because I was a fan of hers. I had her two albums up to that point. And uh, I really was, I mean, I. she tore the picture of the Pope. I didn't think any more of it than I thought about, you know, Saturday Night Live having a newscast. Like it didn't impact me. A, I'm not Catholic, but B, okay, she tore a picture of the Pope, but boy, did, but it did, that blew back at her heart. In fact, even like, you know, a couple of years later, when she was going to, you know, do a performance with Bob Dylan at his tribute concert, it was a couple of weeks later, sorry, a couple of weeks, she was booed right off the stage. Well, you know, I remember as well watching that Saturday Night Live episode and 
I kind of knew this is not going to end well when I saw it happen because <laughs> do you do you remember um, that the audience didn't do anything right and and silence. when you read the story it was silence because uh, Lauren Michaels you know and all the people in the background are freaking out and like do not clap you know they're putting the do like don't clap signs up or whatever they do telling people not to clap and I remember it well and it it destroyed her career and that evening it was unbelievable. Well, it didn't help the fact that she also said, know your enemy, before she did it. Um, So three years after she does this, she took out a full-page ad in the Irish Times asking the public to stop hurting me, please. And she blamed all of her... And there was other bizarre behaviors. I'm going to put this out to you. There were some really weird behaviors from Sinead. She claimed that Prince had kidnapped her after Nothing Compares to You made number one. Kidnapped her, took her out into the desert. Um assaulted her and left her to die and the dates she gave that it happened prince was performing live in paris so it was just so she blamed all this on her troubles uh being being abused as a child right yeah you know i mean she it was really sad right because she became the butt of a million jokes after that but you know uh, i mean it was mental illness uh, now, at least, thankfully, we we know better. And classic case, right? She was struggling, 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 and all kinds of strange things. She, you know, ripping up a picture of the Pope, uh, criticizing organized religion. Uh, mostly, she said later, there, you know, because of the child abuse allegations against the Catholic Church. But then she was ordained as a priest in. Uh, something called the Irish Orthodox Catholic and Apostolic Church in the late 90s. So that's bizarre. And you wonder, well, you don't know what was going through her head, right? She just wasn't thinking clearly. Well, she was. She has been diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder. And you're right, Tony. You don't, and, and I think that we talked earlier about being the child or children of a famous star she was young when she made it big and i think some people can cope with that and other people can't there's a lot of demands placed upon you um and i know i know it's someone's gonna go oh hard work man you're making 15 million a year or whatever for her it was for her i think it 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 shocked her i don't think she was prepared for the worldwide fame that she achieved and it it just as you say it didn't end well mate she's still singing she's still performing she had a few albums that did okay in England and in Ireland after the the incident. She's never she's never rebounded here in North America. No, although her book did her book did very well. Um, but I think people were reading it kind of like the book is called Rememberings in twenty twenty one and became a bestseller. But don't you think that some people are kind of wanting to read the I don't know the, the juicy stuff? As oh, you say? it's like slowing down to look at a car accident. I think right. I, you know agreed. Now, she converted to Islam in 2018 and actually changed her name. I'm going to see if I can pronounce this properly, you know, and apologies to any listeners if I don't. But um, Shahuda Sadakat is what she changed her name to. Is she still uh, a practicing Muslim right now? Do you know? I, I Last uh, last comment she made, she, she did say she is. But, I mean, to kind of, you know, I, I, who knows? Because, as you said... You know, in the late '90s, she was ordained as a priest. So, I think she's searching for something in which she can belong. And and tragically, and I mean tragically, on January seventh, twenty twenty-two, her son Shane was found um, dead 
at Bray County Wicklow by Irish police suicide, um, which, I mean, it's just heartbreaking, you know? Um, and she openly criticized the hospital's care because apparently he was on a suicide watch and he got away from them. But, you know, she later apologized for blaming the hospital, but I mean, it, just one tragedy after another, you know? Yeah, it, it's a very, very sad story. And it became, a, you know, everybody watching it unfold in public, Aaron. That's the other thing. Well, do you remember, and I don't know the year, so forgive me, but do you remember that one year where she was in New Jersey and she, and she was, she quote unquote disappeared, but then she was saying that she was in a hotel room and she was, and she was using Twitter or Instagram and she was talking suicide. Do you remember that? I do remember that. No, I don't know what year that was, but yeah. That, I don't either. And that was again, right? All over news. So it's so sad, just just very sad, you know. But um, yeah, so yeah. You know, uh, an interesting story, though, for sure. And um, let's move on to the charts, though, because you've got well, this is one I've never seen before, actually. Well, before we move on to the charts, I want to you you put something in the notes that I thought was just fascinating, and that is that um, this ad she took out in the in Ireland was in the Irish Times, and you put here that the Irish Times has been in circulation since eighteen fifty nine. Yep, and uh, I, I actually checked out the paper. It's pretty cool, but uh, it's still around. now. Most Different of, editor, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know, right? So so I, what I picked was the top five Euro albums. And what this is, is a chart that looks all across Europe as to what the big albums are and were. And so I thought it'd be kind of interesting to see what was big in Europe on June 10th, 1993. Um and it's, it's funny because it's not that different than America, quite frankly. Number five was Eric Clapton's Unplugged album. Now, I got to say this, and I'll, I'll just get off my soapbox, but Eric Clapton's credited for being the first to release Unplugged. He was not. Paul McCartney, a year prior, released an album, Paul McCartney Unplugged. And McCartney was the only artist to actually use zero amplification and zero electric instruments, whereas Clapton and all the other musicians have used electric basses, keyboards. That's why I put that out there, Tony, because I just think McCartney deserves some credit once mm-hmm. in a while. Number four, Ace of Bass. Do you remember them? I do remember Ace of Bass, yep. Yeah. Uh, ABBA. That's right. <laughs> Happy uh, Nation is the L. Hmm? ABBA 2.0, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought so. <laughs> Happy Nation, the album. Number three, Depeche Mode Recently, we lost Andy Fletcher of Depeche Mode, the keyboard player, 60 years old, and he's he passed away. And I don't know, it hasn't been announced as to how he died, but tragic loss because he's, to me, 60 is so young. Well, we're um, both not far from 60, so yeah, that is very young. I, I don't like oh, hearing it's just about heartbreaking. that. Yeah. No, nor do I. Songs of Faith and Devotion is the name of the album. Number two, another soundtrack to another rom-com I'm proud to say I've never seen. Um, soundtrack to The Bodyguard. Oh, I've not seen that either, so... See, this is why we're best friends, Tony. Exactly. (laughs) And again, we need to stop playing I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Just saying. Yep. Now, have you heard uh, Dolly's version of that? Dolly Parton's version? I have, yeah. I love her version. What do you think of it? Oh, I love Dolly Parton's version of that. And she's had so many requests to use that song. And I think we said uh, a little while ago that Elvis wanted to do the song, and Dolly said no. I read that, and I think that's pretty cool. But uh, I always imagined him singing it because his version of um, "Always on My Mind" mm-hmm. blows me away. But you know, so. you know why uh, 
it was because of that deal that he had, right? That if he covered yeah. somebody's song, he got 50% of the uh, publishing rights or whatever it was. So, I mean, and, and Dolly said, no way, that's not going to happen. That's a heck of a you know, chunk, right? Yeah. But, but it gave a lot of people like Mac Davis a start. So, you know. Exactly. I, I guess Dolly didn't need it. And number one. Aerosmith with Get a Grip. Yeah. And I just read that um, Steven Tyler's gone back into rehab. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, it, it was in the 70s now, but he's back in rehab. So let's oh. we send him nothing but best wishes to Steven Tyler. Oh, absolutely. Because for a while there, they had cleaned right up. and Yeah. And, well, all the best to him for sure. Now, listen, Aaron, this, uh, this segment was a little bit heavy. So I'm ready for a commercial break. What about you? I am indeed. Yes. Yeah. And maybe a traditional Irish breakfast. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, but not <laughs> Irish coffee. I think it's still too early for that. No, so. it's too early for that. <laughs> but we'll be right back. Here's a classic commercial from 1972. Suddenly, there's a whole new way of looking at radio. Introducing the Zenith Trendsetters. Everything from a wallet-style radio that plays open or closed to a self-charging table radio that converts into a portable. Even a digital circle of sound clock radio that surrounds you with sound. See all the new trendsetters from Zenith, where the quality goes in before the name goes on. And we're back here on the west coast of the United States. We're in Beverly Hills, California. This was a sad day, but I think instead of focusing on this singer-songwriter's passing. We're going to focus on his life. This is 2004, and it's June the 10th. Ray Charles died, age 73. And Ray Charles, I don't even know where to start, Aaron. What? Uh, yeah, where, where do you start with this man, this legend? I mean, he, he is a legend, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, glaucoma was what made him blind at the age of six. So he, I, I remember hearing that he could remember what it was like to see when he was older. He wasn't like Stevie wonder who was basically blind from birth, but it is uh, amazing. The legacy that he left behind. And uh, did you see the film with Jamie Foxx? Oh yeah. Classic. Uh, yeah. Jamie Foxx did a very good job of it, by the way, too. Very fantastic. A great deal of credit to him for taking that role on. Yeah. And uh, we were just talking, you know, I, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. This segment could go on for an hour. But do you mind if we focus on uh, his two albums, The Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music, Volumes 1 and 2? Because that might be probably his most widely acclaimed albums, critically anyway, don't you think? Well, it was funny. You, you mentioned it. You, you said to you, we were chatting this morning and you said, oh, I'm listening to this album. And it's, it's so good. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to check it out again because I haven't heard it. And it, it's, they were revolutionary, those two albums. And I agree with you. They're, they're classics, right? So, yeah, I, I, I think you could pick any part of his career. And for the, for the record, pardon the pun, Modern Sounds of Country and Western Music made it to number one on the billboard charts and the follow-up volume two made it to number two oh. these were huge albums they absolutely were but like we were talking this morning imagine the stones on this guy seriously to go into he was with uh which label was he with by this point? atlantic records yeah atlantic he, records. he was with atlantic imagine the stones to go in there and say i've got this idea 
you know, and, and he's an African American. So let's not forget that. I'm going to record a country album, right? I'm going to do a country and Western album, and I'm going to pick a bunch of hurting songs, right? Which that's that's odd enough, first of all. And then I'm going to add a big band in the background and, you know, combine jazz and blues with hurt and country songs. So what do you guys think? And, and, and to top it off, and to top it off, I'm going to do a country album, all that you mentioned, and I'm going to record it in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> so so could, you, could you imagine the Jaws just dropping an Atlantic record? Pardon? Right. I'm sorry, well, what? <laughs> and you joked uh, before we were recording, you know, uh, you made a joke about at least he couldn't see the reactions on their faces. <laughs> All right. I, I did say that. I'm sorry. But yeah. Oh, no, it's true, I mean, though. Can you, I just, and I, I wonder how much pushback he got from the label. Like, I, I could picture Atlantic Records saying, you're not doing this. And because he had just come off a string of hits. Yeah. He was building a career in jazz and blues and all. Oh, you know, this is a real left turn. And let's face it, I mean, although African-Americans had played in the Grand Ole Opry in the 1920s and early 30s, they weren't that plentiful in country music at that point. It wasn't exactly, no. you know, the, a diverse artist, artist, you know? No, exactly. Like, uh, you know, Hank Williams tunes and stuff like that catered to a certain segment of the population, shall true, we say. True, true. You know? Yeah. Um, and they didn't live in New York, let me tell you right now. No, exactly. But it just shows, you know, he was one of the first black artists to have total control of his recorded music career. And he stuck to his guns. And the result is is nothing short of brilliant. It is. It, well, and, and he picked some of the finest songs by fine. He, I mean, he picked a Hank Williams song, Eddie Arnold. Um, oh. Floyd, uh, he picked two Eddie, Eddie Arnold songs, actually. Don Gibson. These guys were known in Nashville. The Bryants, who were, mm-hmm. who made Bye Bye Love, who, which was a hit for the Everly Brothers. Fantastic. But I love his cover of You Don't Know Me. I oh, me that. too. It's fantastic. But you know, again, when we were chatting this morning, um, this would have been an incredible live show. Can you imagine? Like the big band on stage and 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 he starts into a Hank Williams song and then the big band kicks in and, and, and it's a hybrid, right? Country, blues, jazz. But uh, Ray Charles, he said in an interview that country and blues, you know, even though they were, you know, one type of music was sung by white musicians and the other type was sung by black musicians, they were the same thing. Like they were complaining about the same stuff. Right. So he didn't find it odd at all. And he had he'd grown up listening to this stuff. He had been exposed to it. So he for him, it was it was a no brainer. Well, it's it's the reverse. If you think about it, Elvis is the reverse. So Elvis is this white guy who's going to be singing some some basically country and Western. But he's going to look to the blues and jazz and he's going to incorporate what he's hearing from the artist he's, like, he's he's loving, and he's going to incorporate that into his sound. All of a sudden, he's going to create rockabilly, which becomes rock and roll. Yeah. So it, it to Ray Charles, you know, he, he grew up on this stuff, and he heard it. And, you know, when you look at the origins of country music, um, Tony, it, it's all there. Like, it, 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 the, all the music comes together. What, what shocks me, and this is just my opinion, is that those two albums, which were hugely successful, didn't spawn a lot of um, imitators. No, but I wonder... Which I find odd. I, I do find odd too, but I wonder... 
in the same way that maybe Stevie Wonder doesn't spawn a lot of imitators because it would be so difficult to do well, do you think? Yeah, could be. I mean, you kind of listen to those two albums and how do you top them or how do you even... And the only artist that comes close, I just bought his new album, is Lyle Lovett. Mm. And, you know, Lyle Lovett's always had his rather... What's it called? Lyle Lovett's Large Band. And he does kind of country blues, and and I and I and he always tips his hat to Ray Charles, always. And his most recent album that just came out is is similar. I mean, they're more original songs because Lyle writes them, but it's the same feel. Really good album, by the way. But uh, these two, albums, I mean, Ray Charles is a class act from beginning to end, and he didn't just stick to those two genres. He was all over the place, right? Like he oh, was absolutely. Pop- and I mean, his, he was challenging racial barriers at every turn, right? At, right at the yeah. height of the civil rights movement, 1962. So that's three years uh, before the Civil Rights Act is passed, right? And listen to this quote from Billy Joel, though. Uh, you know, because Billy Joel, of course, uh, recorded a song called Baby Grand with Ray Charles. So mm-hmm. here's what Billy Joel said. He, this is in an article for Rolling Stone. He said, here is a black man giving you the whitest possible music in the blackest possible way while all hell is breaking loose with the civil rights movement. Perfect description. Yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah, Billy, well, Billy nailed that one. Yeah. Uh, And and again, you look at an album that uh, his biggest selling album, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but an album called Genius Loves Company, which was by Ray Charles in 2004, and you have him recording with Nora Jones, James Taylor, Diana Krall, Elton John, Bonnie Raitt, Willie Nelson, you yeah. know, B.B. King, Van Morrison. I, I just, you know, this is a guy that just didn't see, pardon the pun, didn't see any barriers or boundaries, you know? No, absolutely not. Yeah, so you picked uh, his biggest selling albums. And let, let's run down that, the five biggest selling albums by Ray Charles. I thought they were interesting because, you know, you know, look, when he started, he was a singles artist because all the artists at the time were singles artists. But he did start making some great albums, such as the number five album, Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music. Number four is an album released in 88 called Anthology. Number three, The Very Best of Ray Charles, which came out in 2000. That sold over a million copies in 2000, which was pretty good for an album by an artist that, you know, hadn't really had a big hit uh, recently. Number two, Ray uh, Soundtrack, which features Ray Charles and Jamie Foxx. And number one, the album I just mentioned, Genius Loves Company, sold five million copies. And again, it wasn't because Elton John was on it. It was because of Ray Charles. And, and again, interpreting some of his older songs, but also doing songs like, I love his version of Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word with Elton John. And, and, um, Man, when he does Fever with Natalie Cole, oh. that's just, it's its its incredible, you know? Yeah, it's that's an such incredible, a fantastic song. I should put that in the, I'm going to put that in the playlist right now. Yeah, yeah, right add now. that in. And you know right what? Second. Guess what time it is. It's time for our From Memphis to Merseyside moment. And we're going to be talking about a certain Elvis Aaron Presley today. So we are heading to 1972 for this one. And we'll be right back. So, Tony, you know, we do From Memphis to Merseyside. Sometimes it's a novel story. Sometimes it's a Beatles story. Today we're going to do a, a story that involves Elvis and the Beatles and Bob Dylan. 
David Bowie, Art Garfunkel. Uh, it was a, a very special concert, right? Well, and I don't think it started out as a special concert, except that Elvis made history. I know, I know who broke it. But having <laughs> four sold-out shows at New York's Madison Square Garden. Yeah, and here is another little tie-in. Uh, you gave me these on CD for Christmas this year, and I love them. I've listened to them so many times, and. I got to tell you, 72, that period from 1970 to, oh, you know, 74, 75, is Elvis Presley at the height of his vocal powers, don't you think? Especially live. Yes. I mean, it's doing it in the studio is one thing, but man, when you hear those from his comeback concert all the way through, it, it's, hey, you know, I just discovered something about Elvis Presley live that I never knew until last night. Okay. He never did encores. Oh, you know what? There's that is very cool, and I'm going to do um, something that is a bell ringer too. <laughs> I'm ready. So Elvis Presley is perhaps maybe the only. Well, I guess the Beatles too, but uh, maybe the only artist who never had a show that didn't sell out over his entire career. Did you realize that? Every, every show, every single show was a sellout so yeah let's ring that bell right now and you know it's funny it's funny because this would have been a time when people would say he wasn't uh commanding the popularity and yet he did four nights now in 2022 it's not a big deal to do four nights at madison square garden i get that in 19 what year was this 19 1972 it was big news it was Mm -hmm. big news that he could sell out and i think at the time he had a hit single with burning love but you know what? And in the audience, in the audience is John Lennon, George Harrison, David Bowie, who actually goes backstage to meet the guy, um, Art Garfunkel, it, and Bob D- Bob Dylan. People don't realize that Dylan was a huge Elvis fan. And um, so I was joking with you earlier. I collect the Beatle records. I also collect, like, let's say Paul's playing on a record. I'll, I'll buy it because Paul's on it. So, of course, I have the double live album because somewhere in the crowd I can hear George and John. <laughs> <laughs> But it is an incredible, like they're, they're incredible live performances, and and um, there's just nobody quite like him. His voice during this period, I mean, was was unbelievable. There's no other way to describe it. I agree. I agree. Totally agree. And and even visually, I like watching the old concert films. There, there, you know, there's no light show. There's no big screen behind. It's just him. But oh. and he's funny. Like I'm sorry, his patter on stage. Oh, he's very, very funny. And you know what? I cannot wait until June 24th, until that Elvis biopic comes out, because uh, supposedly it's great from the reviews that I've heard. So I might just be playing hooky from work that day. Uh, I should drive up to Perth and we should go to Ottawa and see it. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you know what, my friend? What a what a fantastic road trip this has been. And uh, yeah, It was a lot of fun. I mean, it was some heavy material, but a lot of fun. And you know what? The best part spending time with you, Tony, and just talking about this stuff. So I agree. Yep, and I'm looking forward to I'm going to be officially retired in about three more weeks. So I'm going to have a whole lot more time to do this more often, which will be fantastic. Well, and you know, I won't be far behind you. <laughs> exactly. But folks, uh, as always... We want to give out some credit. Rick Denis writes the music for the show. Uh, so thank you, Rick. And we want to thank you, our listeners, for everything that you do to support the show, whether it's even just liking or commenting on a post on social media or sharing the show, or more importantly, 
letting us into your headphones each and every week as we go on this rock and roll road trip. So let's do our sign-off, Aaron. And just remember, folks, if the man is getting you down, you got to keep on rocking. <laughs>